Welcome to Like Me, where I will have conversations with survivors and descendants of genocide from around the world. I'm your host, Joshua Stein, and I am the paternal grandson of a late Holocaust survivor. The more I learn and see how present the very same hatred that my grandfather fled from is in our global society today, the more difficult it is to stay silent one day longer. I'm beginning this project to honor the memory of my grandfather, Charles Robert Stein. On the 28th day of November in the year 1919, he was born Karl to a Jewish family in Vienna, Austria. His father was a printer and mother a seamstress. In 1937, Charles was admitted to the medical school of the University of Vienna. When the Germans marched onto Austria and arrived in Vienna on March 13, 1938, Jews were no longer permitted to study at the university, and Charles began to search for a way out of Austria, now a part of Nazi Germany. By August 1938, he had found a way to leave, and on August 12th, he said his last goodbye to his parents and fled to Luxembourg. He was 18 years old. Today is the 27th day of January in the year 2021 and marks the 76th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz concentration camp and International Holocaust Remembrance Day. The United Nations Holocaust Memorial Ceremony was held earlier and the theme guiding Holocaust remembrance and education in 2021 is facing the aftermath recovery, and reconstitution after the Holocaust. It focuses on the measures taken in the immediate aftermath of the Holocaust to begin the process of recovery and reconstitution of individuals, community, and systems of justice. Integral to the process of reconstitution was the accurate recording of the historical account of what happened before and during the Holocaust. Challenging the denial and distortion of the event, historical events was interwoven in the processes of recovery and reconstitution. The theme examines the contribution of the response to the victims of the Holocaust and of the survivors to addressing the needs of the contemporary world and to the historical record of the Holocaust. Against a global context of rising anti-Semitism, and increasing levels of disinformation and hate speech. Holocaust education and remembrance is even more urgent, as is the development of a historical literacy to counter repeated attempts to deny and distort the history of the Holocaust. That was from the UN. Here is the first of three segments from a conversation with my late grandfather, Charles Stein, from the third day of June in the year 2012 at his home in Springfield, Virginia. At the time, he was 92 years old and I was 17. I'll do it on both. All right. It is Sunday, June 3rd, and I'm talking to my grandpa, Charles Stein. Sorry, you're recording oh history podcast yep so actually the first question i want to ask is what was a community you lived in like before the holocaust in world war ii uh, the uh, community in uh, vienna mm -hmm. austria was uh, a uh, 
Well, a middle-class community. Right. The area where I lived, where all, all people were pretty much middle-class. Uh, and uh, in uh, Vienna, <clears throat> there were no no real distinction between classes, except in the suburbs where the rich people lived, that was different. But otherwise, right. city of two million people. It's uh, all the same. It was just pretty big much. city. Yeah. yeah. So, I know you applied to the medical school of the University of Vienna. What was that experience like? Well, in uh, 1937, <laughs> uh, when I applied for the university, I ran into an interesting problem. Right. Uh, when I filled out the application, and this is not like the American universities. Uh, this was, you finished, when I finished the exams in what is about the, the uh, after high school, uh, and moved right into the university from there, information, the education system was different. Mm -hmm. uh, I uh, ran into a problem of citizenship. When I filled out the papers, I found out that all these years I've been I've been thinking I was an Austrian citizen, and I wasn't. I was stateless. Yeah. I found out from my father, and you probably read this in the book, yeah. from my father that uh, at the time, at the end of World War One, when Austria became the little country from the big country there was before, uh, all the people born outside of the new borders had to apply for citizenship, and my father, at the time, decided he was in the Austrian army. He didn't that didn't apply to him. Well, when that law expired, he, he found out he was stateless, and yeah. so was I. In Austria, uh, even I think even today, you are as a child, you are a citizen of the country that your parents are citizens of. Mm -hmm. It's not like in the U.S. where you're right. automatically a citizen. Yeah. So I was stateless and my tuition was three times that of an oh, of yeah. a, a Austrian. So, okay. And then how did that change when, when you went to go to school? What happened then? Did well, you going, going into school after I got in, except for tuition, Nothing changed. Nothing changed. I was just like any Austrian. But at the end of the first semester, there mm -hmm. was something about that. At the end of the first semester, any foreign student could uh, uh, take two voluntary exams and uh, two other subjects. I took chemistry and, and anatomy. And if you passed it with a top grade, mm -hmm. it was oral exams, one on one with the with the professor. Yeah, professor. Uh, you could apply for uh, your tuition to be uh, equalized with the Austrians. I did that mm -hmm. in February of 1938, and then the 11th of March 1938 came along, mm -hmm. and of course, uh, the next day, all Jews were thrown out of the, out of the university. Right. Okay, and then after being well, being stateless, it was hard to apply for a visa. Right? I couldn't find well, you couldn't find any visa, yeah. and then so how did you make it from Lux to Luxembourg out of Vienna? Uh, I in uh, Vienna, I was looking for a way out. I was going to all the embassies mm -hmm. and everywhere. I got to 
uh, one day, uh, this was in late July, by that time it was pretty hopeless, couldn't find anybody. Mm -hmm. We went, I and my friends went to every embassy. We didn't know what immigration meant. Yeah. We thought, you know, you go to an embassy and said, we'd like to come to your country and we'd, they, they'd invite us. No such no. thing. Well, uh, sometime in uh, about July, I guess, of 1938, I was on the street one day with my friends trying to do this thing. And one of my friends says, hey, don't you have a stateless passport? By that time, I had gotten a stateless passport, yeah. which is a useless document. Mm -hmm. you got to get a visa in there. Yeah. So the uh, I said, yeah. He said, I just heard that Luxembourg will give stateless people a visa for 14 days to come through Luxembourg. So I looked for the... Uh, uh, I went to a telephone booth and mm -hmm. found where the Luxembourg consulate was about two blocks away. And I immediately went there and it turned out to be an apartment. Luxembourg had a husband and wife as yeah. uh, there. They didn't have an embassy. Mm -hmm. So I went there and knocked on the door and just said, uh, I understand I can get a visa. I had no idea what was happening. Uh, my feeling at the time, I was standing there waiting for the for the the lady that opened the door uh uh asking me uh, where are you this going to be a transit visa where are you transiting to yeah show me i had nothing in my passport yeah. but all she said was come back tomorrow i took my passport says come back tomorrow morning at nine o'clock have your visa mm -hmm. uh so after i got the visa i went I, I, I then, by train, went to Luxembourg, yeah. uh, and uh, when I got there, I found out that there was a Jewish organization, Ezra, right. that uh, had an arrangement with the uh, Luxembourg government that they could bring in 200 people, and that's uh, 200 stateless people, because stateless hadn't people had no way to go anywhere right. uh, with a regular uh, German passport mm -hmm. uh, uh, people could get visas to other countries okay. Lima, by stateless passport nothing, nothing. well uh, and so uh, that's how I got to Luxembourg okay uh, I was going to ask you about your experience with the Jewish aid organization Ezra but the, with the what Ezra your experience with Ezra uh, Ezra <laughs> okay, it turned out that Ezra was a, a Jewish organization uh, in uh, apparently uh, a, a Jewish organization in, in Europe, like Hayas is here, Hebrew mm -hmm. Immigrant Aid Society. Yeah. And after I found out that they were being, they, they were financed, the money came from the U.S. from Hayas. Mm -hmm. Ezra. Hayas uh, got to Ezra and said, help these people, and uh, they did. And uh, they had Luxembourg people open their homes to us. Mm -hmm. um, we got, uh, like, I, when I got there, I found out what, what the thing was, and they said, well, we'll get you a place to sleep. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was my first interesting experience. Yeah. I got to this place, and... 
nice old couple had a house. And the woman said, yeah, I'll, I'll take it. And she opened the door and walked into this one room. There were three guys in there. Happened to be all about my age, all yeah. from Austria. And one bed. Ugh. And But they were friendly. Oh, glad yeah. you could make it out. And they said, they told me, you get that bed every fourth day. Yeah. Now it was every third day, but now with you here, that's every fourth, the rest of us. I didn't care. Yeah. At that point, it was I a place was out. Yeah. So how did you, where did you go from there, from Luxembourg to? Beg your pardon? How did, where did you go from Luxembourg? Uh, from Luxembourg, I came to the U.S. Right. About a year and a half later. Yeah. So and, you, uh, where did you stay between that year, during that year and a half? In Luxembourg, I stayed in wherever they uh, they after a while uh, the this organization got a hotel that had been emptied out. Mm -hmm. It was for sale, and I think they rented it or whatever. They got the hotel, and we all moved into this hotel. Uh, and they had a kitchen there, and then we didn't have to go out. And uh, they farmed us out for uh, before that to people who offered to give us a meal every day. Yeah. And you know, it was a, a friendly thing. And uh, then we moved into that hotel, and uh, we uh, we at least uh, there was a kitchen, and we had you know a meal, a couple of meals a day. Uh, during that period, of course, I was trying to get somewhere, and I found out I got a, a message from my mother that her cousin. She had a cousin in America. Mm -hmm. He came here about the turn of the century, about 1900. Okay. He, they, his family sent him away as a boy to America with somebody else. Yeah. And she just found out she had no contact with him. But she found out that he was he was around. He was alive. He lived in New York. Mm -hmm. She said she got his address from somebody, and uh, so I wrote to him, and pretty soon. Louis sent me, well, he sent me, I got a letter from him saying he didn't have the means to, to, uh, give, uh, give, uh, uh, make out an affidavit of support, was it right. called, but he had some, uh, somebody he knew who had a business and, uh, they would do that. Shortly after that, I got that. And right. would you like to hear the story of how I got to America? Oh, sure. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. That was in, this was in August of 1938. Mm -hmm. I got to Louis and shortly after that I got that affidavit. And I found out that the uh, American, the, uh, America had no presence in Luxembourg, no embassy. Nothing. They worked through the embassy in uh, Belgium. Okay. So the Luxembourg people had taken my stateless passport away. I got another piece of identification then, and uh, I had to go to Belgium. So the Luxembourg people gave me a Belgian, a Luxembourg stateless passport. Yeah, but that was good to go to Belgium. I didn't have a need a visa. Luxembourg and Belgium didn't have it. didn't have a visa to go across the border. Uh, so I turned that thing in, and I found out, and the the consul was very happy. I spoke English. Right. I had four years of English in school, and uh, I liked it, yeah. learned most of my English in the American movies. Yeah. But anyhow, he uh, 
he talked to me, very friendly, and he said, yeah, you've got a good quota number from Vienna, and so you'll be going very shortly. And about four weeks later, I got a letter from the embassy, and I said, ah, this is it, and I opened it up. And what I found in there was, hey, Mr. Stein, we need one more document from your sponsor. Okay, I thought this was legitimate. This went on for about for over, over the next 12 months, for about two, five or six times. One more piece of paper, one more. I thought this was all the right thing. Yeah. And the 1st of uh, September 1939, war broke out in Europe. The Germans marched into Poland, mm -hmm. France and England declared war, and we were sitting right in the middle, and scared. And uh, two weeks later, they called, I uh, got a letter from the embassy saying, uh, come get your visa. But that one year before, I thought this was all legitimate. I didn't find out until 1985 when a document from the State Department, U.S. State Department, was declassified and a man by the name of Breckenridge Long, high-ranking man in the State Department, in 1938, had put out a secret message to all the consulates in Europe. And basically, not in those words, but basically what it said was, Hey, we got all these Jews want to come to America. Keep them out as long as you can. Stall them with anything you can. Oh. Actually, in the text of that thing, at the end, it's with, uh, and thereby delay and delay, twice delay. So that's what all those letters were. Yeah. And Obviously, when the war broke out, that thing was rescinded, and uh, I got the visa. Yeah. But there was a, a long wait that I didn't know about until, what, 40 years after the war. Right. <laughs> okay, so how would you say the Holocaust influenced your faith? Your faith. What's that? How would you? How did the Holocaust influence your faith? My faith. Yes. Uh, that's a good, a good question yeah. because uh, I used that once. Uh, I was speaking to a a church here, mm -hmm. right here, and, and uh, of course, when I came back. And I found out that I was alone. It was everybody was dead. Mm -hmm. At that time, I didn't even know that my two cousins uh, right. uh, were in, in Israel at the time. Didn't find that out until twenty years later. Mm -hmm. But uh, the, uh, the at that time, I I was I quit. Mm -hmm. I was talking to God. Right. I told God where to go. Goodbye and good luck. I wouldn't go near a synagogue mm -hmm. for the next few years, but then it came all back. But at the time, no, I was no. I was mad. Yeah. Uh, I I was uh, then t talking to myself, saying there is no God. Mm -hmm. There's nobody. Particularly when I found out that uh, at that time I knew that. Uh, uh, by early 1946, I found I got a message from from Vienna when I asked a question that my parents and all my family had been deported to Poland and do not appear on any survivor lists. Mm -hmm. At that point, I didn't know. And as I uh, probably told you before, yeah. I, I, not until 1995 did I find out what happened to my parents. Mm -hmm. 
my parents, all all the people from all the Jews from Vienna were uh, sent to uh, the large ghetto mm -hmm. in Poland. And that's when I found out they left about the same time that I got in the army in 1941. They were deported to Poland. And in 1995, at the Holocaust Museum, I, uh, one of our teams had found the German records of the large ghetto. When the Germans, uh, when the Russians uh, came through, the Germans uh, fled out of large, uh, out of the Poland, and left all the records. In at the, at the, they didn't have time to to even uh, did or didn't I don't know what Germans Kafira left all the records there. The Poles found them and put them into a the basement of one of their office buildings oh, somewhere wow. in Warsaw. And in 1995 or 90 or just about that time 95. Uh, one of our teams uh, from the Holocaust Museum was looking for uh, any any German records that were still available. Yeah. And they found the whole records of the large ghetto in the basement of this one place, totally. brought them back. It was just a few days after it had gotten there uh, to into Washington. I was doing a study for the director of the Holocaust Museum at the time. And I had, uh, uh, made, I had made an appointment with the head of the archives. I got in there and I said, uh, he asked me, you know, he said, who are you? And I told him, uh, survivor, and he said, uh, how about your family? I said, no idea. I know they were deported to Lodge and then, since then, got nothing. Mm -hmm. He said, I think I can help you. Right next door, and he told me what our team had found, and it was right next door. He says, listen, what you came here for, we can talk about that later. Go take a look and see if you walked in there, and sure enough, five big volumes, German-like, everything in order. And uh, the uh, man that had this uh, said, uh, Stein, it's got to be about here, picked up the thing, uh, the, the, the volume, I sat me down, uh, desk and I started flipping I got to SST Stein and on one page I found my mother my father my uncles my aunts and my uh, I think somewhere I even made a copy of, of uh, right there uh, they let me copy the pages I got it someplace I don't know where it is but anyhow that is what happened um, so 50 years after the war I found out my parents were the first ones. When the final solution, when the, the Germans made the decision, the final solution was the, uh, that was decided in uh, January of 1942 at the Wannsee Conference. You ever see that movie? No. I've got it here. Yeah. Take it with you. Take a look at it. Okay. This is uh, apparently uh, the uh, uh, someone, the minutes of that particular meeting of the Germans, when they decided to kill all the Jews, yeah. uh, the all the participants had a, a copy of the minutes, and they were supposed to, after they looked it over, were supposed to destroy it. One of them didn't, and it was, somehow it was found, and uh, got 
somehow got to New York, uh, to U the U.S. and uh, I don't know whether Spielberg or somebody made a movie out of it. Yeah. And it's supposed to be the translated into English. The the whole conference, and you see the that's all you see the, the conference and what they talked about at the end of a couple of days of talking. All the highest ranking people in Germany were, that were in this conference all said, kill them. That's when it, so right after that, when they, start, they started the killing, in, um, right after the decision, they tested it out. They tested some of the, uh, the uh, vans. They loaded people into vans and killed them. Others, they just mowed down and uh, the first ones uh, in January were the gypsies for about a couple of weeks, and then they stopped it. They got organized. And then the van started going, coming to the large ghetto. Now in the large ghetto, there's some other, the, uh, the eldest of the Jews, the head of the Jewish group in, in the large ghetto, uh, Rumkowski, was asked every day to furnish a number of people to go to work. Mm -hmm. They had these vans waiting, put, put the people into the vans, and of course the people never came back. And at the time, Romkowski, his decision was get rid of all these new people, his own people, the, the people that lived in Lodge. Uh, but here were all these people from Austria and Germany, send them, send them away to work or whatever. And uh, my parents were in the seventh van, which put them. Uh, the The whole thing started on the twenty first of uh, of the twenty second of February, nineteen forty two. My parents were in the vans on the twenty eighth of February and never came back. Mm. And now in a mass grave at a place called Helmlo, which was an old estate uh, had been abandoned somehow. Well, whoever was there, the Germans took it over, and that became a mass grave of about a hundred thousand people. So, how did the Holocaust change your perspective on human nature? Are humans inherently good or uh, evil? Well, up until uh, until I left Austria, mm -hmm. I was happy with the world. Yeah. I had a great future and whatever. But uh, in uh, after that, I became suspicious of everything. Nothing was right anymore. Mm -hmm. That lasted for a long time, at least through my second war, which was uh, the uh, Korean War. Uh, by that time, I had, I had found religion again. I mm -hmm. came back and right. I made peace with and it found out more of what happened by that time and all that. It made, made no difference anymore. But uh, it was, it wasn't easy. And uh, after that, it took a while, but I think I consider myself strictly an optimist. Mm -hmm. Everything's going to be all right, you know. Considering what I lived with, it couldn't get any. It had to be better. Yeah. 
So, how did your responsibilities to your family, your, yourself, and your education change during the Holocaust? My responsibilities? Yeah. Well, uh, one of the things I'll say, I, I always I felt responsible for everything I did mm -hmm. and everything I planned. Uh, I was, of course, uh, by the time I got married, I was almost 35 years old. Yeah. I did not, until that time, and of course with my military service and all that, uh, I didn't, didn't have any, really make any connections that got me into the, the situation where mm -hmm. I got married. Uh, from then on, when I, when I finally got married in, when did I get married? In 1954? Yeah, 1954. Uh, I was just about 34, 35 years old. Mm -hmm. uh, I... Well, even uh, up till day. I was looking for justice. And everything, right. everything had to be right. But uh, I, I took responsibility for everything I did, yeah. and still do. Right. Okay. What is your proudest moment? My what? Your proudest moment, the moment you're most proud of. My proudest moment. And come back. I to think that, my so. proudest moment was. The birth of my grandchildren. Yeah. I was alone in the world in 19, for, for many years. Mm -hmm. And being married was the beginning of it. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, it wasn't the end of me, of my, my family. There was a new family coming up. Right. And uh, I went crazy with all of you guys. Yeah. yeah. So after your kids and then their kids, that was the yeah that the best was part. Uh, definitely. Uh, I've had a lot of things, and you see all kinds of trophies and medals and all that. You know, proud yes, but never the same feeling as when Aaron my, was born. My my children and my grandchildren. Thank you for tuning in. Please visit our site at likemepodcast.org to share these stories and subscribe for updates.